0: Welcome to the Old Paz Podcast. My name is Benjamin Hicks. I'm a pastor here in London, Ontario. Do you want to introduce yourself, Michael?
1: Sure. I'm Michael Spangler, a minister in Greensboro, North Carolina. And thank you very much. Cody, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, my name is Cody Justice. I live in West Virginia with my family, where I also own and operate a landscape maintenance business.
0: Wonderful. Thank you both for joining us today. Today is an episode where we're carrying forward our series on William Ames's work, The Marrow of Theology. And uh, for those of you who've been following this series, we begin by looking at the history of the man who wrote this great work himself, the Puritan William Ames. And uh, last time in this series, we began to look at his first chapter in this work, where it is especially discussing the nature of theology itself. And we saw that for Ames, he would see the, the discipline of theology as the doctrine of living to God. It's not something that concerns just our intellect, but it concerns the whole life. And, um, and we saw how that has much to recommend it as far as a definition. And today we are talking about the second chapter, which is a short chapter, and Lord willing, we hope to also begin to look at chapter three as well. Um, the second chapter is about the division or parts of theology. And I wonder if Cody, you could uh, get us started. What is the purpose of this chapter in, um, in this book?
2: Sure. So it, he seems to me to be following, if you go from where we were last time, he defines theology. Now he's going to start uh, distinguishing it into chief parts or chief divisions. Uh, so it's a you know logical and a useful progression. And uh, he just sets out the two, what I would see, and I would agree with him, the two main parts of theology, which are faith and uh, observance, and just gives us basically an overview of what those two things are, Uh, Although, as you see in the footnote, number six, it looks like, I mean, I'm not familiar with this myself, so perhaps one of you two or both of you could speak to it. There's certainly some scholastic uh, methodology, it looks like, uh, wrapped up in how he's dividing these two, uh, faith and observance. Is that true?
0: Yeah, I'll just read that footnote. I don't know, because I know that Michael is going through the Latin version. This might be part of the translation from the edition that's translated by uh, John Euston. But in, in my translation, I think it's the same on you, Cody. It says in footnote six, in reference to the uh, second point, um, the distinction between the first act and the second act is made in the scholastic sense that the first act of anything is its being or the second is its op- working or operation, Upper AI. And so there, um, it's uh, it's in reference to point two, where it's talking about um, this division is something that's true in some sense for every art that there's both the um, the two there's the twofold division. So I'll just quote that second uh, sentence just because it's relevant here. It's characteristic of this division, and is as as it is required to any art, that it follows from the nature of the object. Since the beginning or first act of the spiritual life, which is the proper concern of theology, is faith, and the second act or operation of that principle is observance, it follows that these two are the genuine parts of theology, and that no others are to be sought. So it sounds as though um, he's he's making up uh, an argument. Somewhat from philosophy, I would say, Michael, would you
1: agree with that assessment? Yes, as often in theology is using some philosophical understandings to help clarify. Faith is the beginning of spiritual life and observance or obedience is its continuation. So by faith, we are alive. And by observance, we put forth acts of life and that historically was spoken of as the first act of life and the second act of life very good
0: so we see how it's following through really from um, the first uh, the first thing he said which is that faith is a doctrine of living to God and now he's defining what that life that life is I think that's that's helpful myself but I think what's more helpful, is bringing that also to bear on, on uh, a number of different texts in the scripture where he's going to be arguing that this is actually found in the text itself. So um, uh, a number of them that he cites here, I'll, I'll just say a couple examples. 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, having faith and a good conscience. Or Psalm 37 verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Um, and some of these might be um, different from the King James because I think he's using the older um, the older translation there from uh, from Geneva. But, um, yeah, he carries forward to a number of different passages where it seems like even on the surface of the text, you find the biblical authors referencing that as well. Did either of you find any of the specific scriptural references to be illuminating or helpful?
2: I'll speak to, to Psalm thirty-seven, three. Uh, just note the beautiful simplicity of it. Trust in the Lord and do good, and that's an accurate. I mean, it's a wonderful summary of our faith. What we're to do.
0: Amen. And for myself, when when I was in seminary and I was I was wrestling with this book, I found reading it with an open Bible and going through all these different references was really helping me develop a grid for interpreting scriptures in a number of different places. And uh, the thing about Ames is he very much knows his Bible. He's, a, he's very much as a biblical theologian in the best sense of that, seeking to understand um, the scriptures, but bringing in some of these scholastic or, or technical categories, just where it's illuminating what's already in the text for him. And uh, what this is, what we're going to see is that the uh, overall structure of the whole work is divided in these two clear halves. So the first half is going to be unfolding faith and its uh, and its relation to the uh, the works of salvation through Jesus Christ, and the second half is going to be the observance with which Christ works in us through various work works or fruits of uh, of that faith. And so the whole, um, the whole systematic theology has that clear division. Um, in the fourth uh, heading here of this chapter, he says, these two parts are always joined together in use and exercise. They are distinguished in their nature and in the rules which govern them. And the fifth uh, heading there, they are also distinguished in the order of nature so that faith holds the first place spiritual observance the second for no vital actions or life are forthcoming except way, where where uh, there is an inborn principle of life so um, clearly he's uh, he's trying to follow through with his commitment later in the first chapter where it's a practical discipline theology and it's one lived not only to the glory of god but through the strength and the grace that the lord supplies Um, any any concluding thoughts on the second chapter before we shift to the third chapter please
1: i would just add the division sounds very familiar to anyone who knows the westminster shorter catechism Mm -hmm. what do the scriptures principally teach the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning god and what duty god requires of man and the whole catechism is divided accordingly
2: yeah that when I read this being familiar with the standards that jumped out to me right away as well one thing I'll say maybe we could before we go to chapter three camp here for a minute if you brethren would be willing to I think it could be profitable uh when in in point number one um where he's referencing Abraham the same parts made up the theology. <laughs> of Abraham. So if we go back to Ames's definition of theology, the doctrine of living well unto God. So we can say the same parts made up the doctrine of living well unto God for Abraham. He's got Genesis 156 and 171, which he kind of he just puts together. Abraham believed the Lord. That's Genesis 156. Then he goes to 171 and says walk before me continually and be untouched. Uh, the, The authorized, I think, says, walk before me and be thou perfect. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So he sees this as faith and observance, faith and obedience. And if we go to, I think, the paragraph you just mentioned, Benjamin 5, he means spiritual observance. So he's talking about experimental religion, not just externals. So I raise all that to say there are systems of doctrine which would go back to Abraham and to, to Moses, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and say, that's not spiritual. It's external. And I would just ask, is, is that a problem? And if so, why? You know, is, is, Ames, is Ames right or are these other systems For example you know 1689 federalism that's really popular among our baptist brethren they will say that that text is works that's a works that's a works principle and what they mean by that is that's not there's not experimental religion there
0: i think that's a hugely important uh topic cody do you want to take a first
1: stab at that michael I think it's wrong to assert that there's not an evangelical perfection required in the New Testament. We're really different than Abraham. The perfection required is not legal. It can remind us of, in the law, he does. But it's not as if that way is open anymore for salvation. The covenant with Abraham, evidently in 15 and 17, Genesis is a covenant of grace. And so the perfection required is evangelical. It it certainly admits a failure. If the requirement were an absolute perfection, none of us would ever go to heaven. But there is a perfection required of our sincerity and of our parts. So by sincerity, we're required to have a real love for God, not a fake love for God like the Pharisees. A heart that is committed to God even with its failings and falterings. The parts, the perfection of parts, means that we don't have a missing limb in the body of our Christian life. The parts may all have their own failures, but they're all present. So we're not a Christian who who keeps um, nine of the Ten Commandments. We're not a Christian who has uh, faith and hope, but no love. And all those things need to be there. Though it's not a perfection of degrees, as if all the parts were perfect. But those two things, sincerity and a perfection of parts, that's essential now as a believer. And one proof of that is Paul. Paul speaks in Philippians 3, in verse 12. He says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. He makes it clear, I'm not perfect, not by degrees. He goes on though to explain how he presses forward toward the mark for the prize of a high calling of god in christ jesus so there's a good example
0: yes can
1: you brothers hear me okay i think there's a little bit of a he denies that he's perfect, and he asserts that all Christians are perfect.
0: I I was at a little bit of difficulty hearing him. Can you hear me okay?
1: And
2: Brother, you still there? We're still we're still
0: here, brother. All right. So, well, I, I think I was having some technical difficulties, but it looks like the recording is back in progress. And I was really appreciating all that Michael was saying. I hope I was not disrupting it too much. I was done. Very
2: good. I think Very it came good. clear on my end, so as long as the recording was still recording, it should be there. We'll see. Very good. Um, Another just say okay, one other text. He doesn't mention he doesn't mention Moses, but I think it's relevant as well. Uh, Deuteronomy ten. And now verse twelve. Wow. Now does the Lord the I got walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the lord thy god with all thy heart with all thy soul for thy good uh later Ames will relate fear and faith and say they're basically integrally related (laughs) subsumed under faith religion and it's if I can speak frankly, I think it's near blasphemous to say that it, it was not, um, that it was just external works. <clears throat> and I would say the same with, with the Moses, with the Mosaic covenant. Yes, I think that's that's certainly
0: a valid reason, Cody. And for myself, I think that one of the real advantages to this work of the Merrill theology is there's an appreciation for the covenant of grace revealed throughout uh, redemptive history and through every page of the Bible. And those systems you were referring to, which tend to appreciate that element of the covenant of grace um, as a a single covenant revealed throughout the old covenant and the new covenant uh, administrations, they do tend to uh, really depreciate the The richness of that covenant and its its various uh, revelations but i i would definitely agree that those systems that would try to pit um, the mosaic uh covenant or the um or the abrahamic covenant against the over against the new covenant it's usually coming unfortunately from a place that's depreciating the importance of, uh of the law in in our sanctification unfortunately I think that's that's kind of an inevitable um consequence of it. I think we are going to see once they once we come to the sections about the Covenant of works, you are going to see that Ames is is going to leave some uh, room for seeing the Mosaic Covenant as also revealing the Covenant of works in uh in a unique way as opposed to the other. Uh, covenantal administrations, but you're also going to see him applying the the the, um, the Book of Deuteronomy and other uh, other texts very much to um, to the to the Christian life in other respects. So it's it's not a simplistic uh, understanding of covenant theology, and it, it might leave some room for uh, for disagreements uh, even within this, uh, this group. But it's certainly not uh, giving any credence to the 1689. which I agree with you leads to some bad problems if you if you take it to his logical conclusion yeah so I think that was helpful did you brothers want to follow through on on something about uh, that chapter again before we move on to chapter three thank you I think that was a good uh, a good thing to dwell on though so uh, next we're going to look at uh, chapter three which is about faith and uh it's interesting in and a future episode i think it would be good to contrast the chapter on faith in um in this section and the one that takes place in book two chapter five which is also about faith but um considered from from a different vantage point more from the from how it is the the seed of all observance right here um, it's defined in in book one in a particular way and uh, it's seeking to a good groundwork for how it um, how it, it relates to everything else in the first section where our faith has its um has its place uh, in our salvation through Christ now uh, Michael um, my understanding is that William Ames is uh, somewhat controversial in his definition of faith. Can you maybe give us some historical background for why that is and maybe lay the groundwork for saying what, um, what is good about his definition of faith and what might be some of the critiques of it even among other Reformed theologians?
1: Yes, well, I have been Maastricht here and this has been a large part of my life for many years now many years, a few years, translating, editing, then Maastricht. And he thinks very highly of Ames. But he doesn't agree with him on this, that Ames says that faith is an act of the will. Maastricht says that it's an act of the intellect and the will, really of the whole soul. Now, what's interesting is that Ames here does say it's an act of the whole man. If you look in Number three, he says it's an act of the whole man. But then he says that doesn't fit with an act of the intellect. Well, that, that doesn't really make sense. I think there's just a misunderstanding behind names. There's a good desire, and Master has the same, to insist on this, that the faith, if it's saving, always involves the will. We need to really affirm that. That's That's very important. Faith is spoken of not just as believing or assenting, but as choosing. And faith has many acts that are acts of the will, acts of love. For example, faith delights in God. Faith rests, faith receives Christ, John 1.12, as many as received him. To them gave he the right to become the children of God. So that's very important. But it's not the same thing to say that it requires the will to be saving and that it is only an act of the will and not of the intellect. If all he were to say is it's not an act of the intellect alone, no problem. And he does say that fairly well. But then in a few places, he seems to deny that it's an act of the intellect. But then he comes back and speaks of how faith believes the truth of the word of god and we have faith then as an act of the intellect i think his the the explanation would be if i look at the number in number 9 he says that when you believe a promise when you believe a truth then that's called the object of faith by metonymy of the adjunct so you're believing in christ and That's only associated or an adjunct with the things you believe, whether promises or facts about Christ. But even there, you can say, why are they adjuncts? Why do they go together? And why is it proper to speak of believing the truth of God as well as believing in Christ? I think Maastricht pulls it all together and says, faith is an act of the whole man and of the whole soul. It's an act of the intellect and of the will. So to paint more of the historical background, Maastricht in his chapter on faith, section 22 in the lactic part, he deals with this question, does saving faith consist only in the ascent of the intellect? And he says there are two ditches here, that there are people who state that faith consists only in the ascent of the intellect. He says even some reformed though so they don't define assent in a bare way as if there's no there's no commitment or persuasion that Christ is the Redeemer. But he says on the other side, most of the practical writers among the British place saving faith in the will alone, whereby we rest in God through Christ. And he has aims in mind, no doubt. They do this because they judge that no assent of the intellect is itself sufficient for receiving Christ. There are those who choose the middle way of thinking, This is Maastricht's preferred way. He's always looking for the golden mean in which saving faith consists neither in the intellect alone nor in the will alone, but in the whole spiritual life of a person. And listen to these distinctions. Indeed, radically in the intellect, but formally in the will and operatively in the remaining faculties of the soul. So we could simplify and say faith starts in the intellect, but it takes its shape by the will, and it comes to life or acts in the rest of the faculties. And I think that's a fuller and better treatment than Ames alone. Thank you, Michael. That That's
0: very helpful. And I think that um, the way that things have shaken out in the Reformed tradition is that um, Van Maastricht's, I, w- I would agree, more careful way of putting it, has generally been the majority view among the Orthodox. I think there's very, I can't think of anyone else offhand today who would go as far as William Ames does in saying it's only in the it's only in the will, right? Sometimes if you want to put it more, uh, more favorably for Ames, you could say that the seat of faith is in the will. So uh, to, to put the emphasis there, But there are definitely some passages where I think you're right. He wants to to put it more starkly than that. I just want to read some passages just to give people some context for what you're talking about, Michael. So the the very first uh, sentence here in, in point one of this chapter, Faith is the resting of the heart on God, the author of life and eternal salvation, so that we may be saved from all evil through him and may follow all good. So he has some scripture references there. Um, now in uh, in point uh, three, he says, in this way, faith comes by the good, which then becomes ours through faith. It is an act of choice, an act of the whole man, which is by no means a, me- a mere act of the intellect. So who, who's going to disagree that it's a mere act of the intellect. Well, in his own day, there were some people who seemed to be saying that or were in danger of saying that, that it's a mere act of the intellect, and he's rejecting that. And he also says in point four, although faith always presupposes a knowledge of the gospel, there is nevertheless no saving knowledge in anyone or even a knowledge different from that found in those who are not to be saved accept the knowledge which follows this act of the will and depends upon it. So um, here in, in, in other places as well, we're seeing the, the understanding is coming here again and again. But what he's wanting to say is the point at which a, a non-saving faith, which only resides in the intellect, and, and saving faith is made to differ, is where the will... Um, the will rests in that uh in that gospel. I just want to read one other uh section where he I think is interacting with Ames. And that's the very last. Um sorry, he's interacting with people like Maastricht, even though that's put anachronistically, because obviously Ben Maastricht had not been bored at that point. But this is where he's interacting with that that position in uh point 22 at the very end. Some place true faith partially in the understanding and partially in the will. This is not quite correct, for it is a single virtue and bring forth, or brings forth acts of one quality throughout, not partially of knowledge and partially of the affections. The firm assent to the promises of the gospel is called both faith and trust partly because, as general assent, it produces faith, and partly because, as a special and firm assent, it flows from trust as it takes actual possession of grace already received. This firm assent leans on the trust of the heart as a middle or third term, by the strength of which alone a conclusion about faith can be reached. Moreover, experience teaches that particular certainty of the understanding may be lacking in some at times, even though they have a true faith hidden in their hearts." So that's how he's trying to trying to respond to that. Um, my, my immediate response to Ames at this point would be uh, could you therefore have, um, have a trust that has no knowledge whatsoever, right? So I think we can understand that there can be an imperfection Uh, in your understanding and still have true faith um, in the sense that there's trust in the Lord. And yet, I think once you, you try to make it that, um, that loaded upon the will, I think you're, you're maybe running into uh,
1: some imbalances. Would you agree with me there, Michael? Yes, I think so. And in his own words, there's a good question to ask. He says, that it's a single virtue in bring forth acts of one quality. Well, he already called faith an act. It's the first act of spiritual life. Would he then deny that the spiritual life acts in the will? Or, sorry, in the intellect? You know, the Maastricht says faith he agrees with Ames that faith is an act of the whole soul. The whole soul lives to god so isn't it proper to think that faith resides as well in the intellect it too needs to live to god and does when a man believes yeah it seems
0: to me that if, if he were to reflect a little bit upon his own position i think he, he would not want to be hostile to uh, the more nuanced view that van Maastricht is putting out because again he's again and again uh, pointing to the fact that there is the the uh, understanding involved um, Cody what did you think about this chapter as you were you were reading it
2: I thought it certainly stimulated me to try to think about faith what it is its relations in ways I had perhaps not done before uh, I must confess, Uh, my relative stupidity, some of these things I'm I'm not quite following fully. Um, I I do appreciate, he says, that um, faith clings to God. Because when I was reading the first part, I thought, okay, he seems to really be emphasizing the receptive aspect of faith. But I was certainly reading scripture think there's definitely an active uh, element of faith where you are, you're laying hold upon God, upon Christ, upon his, his promises. Um, so that's an element that I think can be neglected in the way we talk about faith, the way we think about faith, the way we preach about what faith does. Um, you know, it, there is a, there is an activity there, um, in, in my mind, where you are taking hold of the promises of God, and there can even be a um, you know, some sort of relation to present circumstances. I think of 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, your, your faith growth exceedingly. What's the circumstance? The circumstance they're facing tribulation and persecution. Uh, I think of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, all the, the many examples that we have there. And so, you know, I like to think of that as faith incarnate, if you will. You see that it's, uh, don't want to denigrate this, but it's not just limited to the first act of when you believe upon Christ savingly. And it's not just limited to a fresh application to Christ. There are also other things wrapped up in that Moses left Egypt for Christ. And so he was exercising faith in his day and in his time and and. There was not faith itself. I don't think faith itself has something tangible, but there's certainly the effects uh, were tangible in his life, and I don't, I'm not sure that that's something that is um, emphasized. So, coming back to Ames, uh, I appreciate him mentioning you know some of those elements, the the activeness of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree with you, I think there there are helpful things here. I think that when I came to. Uh, seminary, and I first encountered this. Uh, it, it seemed very strange, very strange, and uh, but very helpful in, in certain ways. Because what I came to realize is that I hadn't been doing proper justice in my own understanding of faith, uh, as it concerns. It's an act of the whole man and an act of the of the will, in particular. Just for for myself. Seeing that pointed out uh, time and time again in the scriptures from this chapter was very helpful. Like, like even um, really thinking through all of the different references in the Gospels where uh, faith is described as a coming unto Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, so the fact that Jesus says, you know, um, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will no wise cast out, right? Um, that isn't a, a marginal or or um, you know um, you know minority way of, of describing faith. It's a, a prominent feature in the scriptures, right, and other cases like it, where it is an act of the choice, uh, an act of our of our choice to embrace Christ, to trust Him, and there's a movement of the whole the whole person towards Him, right. And I think those those things they grip us when we're, I think when we're first encountering uh, the scriptural history and the and the message of Jesus, but uh, for Ames, unlike other systematic theologies, what I found is that that he was immediately bringing the heart of that aspect of faith, and forcing me to think through every um, every other aspect to it in in that. In that relation, so um, yeah, for for myself, it was very helpful. I as I've thought it through, and I and I read the whole chapter. What I want to do is is take you know Ames by the hand, by the shoulder and say, "Look, my friend, there there's, there might be a better way to put this together." At the same time, I I appreciate it for what it is, and you can certainly at least appreciate that he is trying to do the, the well its due. Um, Yeah, Michael, did did you have anything you wanted to say about that?
1: I appreciate what your brothers have said, and I think we all agree that without the activity of the will, faith is not saving. And this is essential to preaching as well. We do teach men the truth that they have to assent to before they're saved. But that truth always carries with it an urgent call. To embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel,
0: very much. And I and I want to read this section again because for me, I found this oh, very fast. arresting when I first read it, and I, I've already read it, but I want to read it again in connection with what Michael has just said in point four. Although faith always presupposes a knowledge of the gospel, there is nevertheless no saving knowledge in anyone, or even a knowledge different that found in those who are not saved except the knowledge which follows this act of the will and depends upon it. Um, so that, to, to me, I, I I found that to be uh, bringing out some of the, you know, the importance of preaching discriminatingly, right? So people can rest in what our, our tradition sometimes calls head knowledge, right? You've got all this intricate knowledge of the scriptures right but you have people who simply are not they're not affected by it they're not changed by it and it's because um they've they are simply resisting the com- the command of the gospel the imperative that you must respond in in faith and embracing the savior um, and just the the fact that someone can have a a. knowledge which in itself is not defective in that it's it's saying something that's that's wrong and yet it's not the the character of one who who is uh who is converted i think maybe in some way you could say it's it's wrong because he even says that there's there is a knowledge which belongs to the elect um, and depends upon their embrace of the gospel but yeah there is still a, a knowledge that they share in common with the unconverted Am I understanding that that section right uh, that, that seems to me how he's he's um, developing these different aspects of faith
2: and that it looks like it to me if I'll read the those scripture references he's got there at the end of point four I've got mm-hmm. them ready John 7:17 7, if any man will do his will he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. John 8, 31 through 32, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And hereby we do know that we know him, this is 1 John 2, 3, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Uh, so it appears to me, that yeah you're reading it, you're reading it correctly so, and and paul says there's a doctrine after godliness um so going back to ames what's the object of our faith it's not a system it's not abstraction the doctrine is for god it's god himself it's a person and he even speaks in one of the paragraphs can't remember which one it is. I think it's toward the end. Um, Eighteen, yes. Faith is the first act of our life whereby we live to God in Christ. It must consist of union with God, and so he just keeps driving it back to this to this point. So I think you're reading it correctly, and I think we need to emphasize that um, there is a there is a danger sin can attach to theological learning and, and systems and so on and so forth. Um and all that is meant to serve our love of the Lord and our being with him. Mm-hmm.
0: Very helpful, Cody. I think I think that um for this episode, brothers, I think we should probably bring it to a close. There are other things about this chapter I want to come back to, so I think we will pick it up next episode, particularly as it concerns the object of faith, I think it's one of the most helpful things I've personally read in, uh, in explaining what is the object of faith. Um, but uh, for, uh, for today, does anyone have any concluding thoughts as to how to bring us home? I think that maybe one of the things that we could emphasize here is that um, in the Reformed Church today, right? That with so much emphasis on learning and upon books that even those who uh, have, have a great love for theology, right, they can sometimes not not actually become something of the heart, right? It can be a, something of pride. It can be something where they're in it for for exactly the wrong reasons, right? And I think that one of the things we'd want to encourage our listeners, we're happy you're listening to this, but uh, being very fluid in theology and reading Puritans is not is not what makes something right An actual coming unto. I think that uh, to have come that far right to be that exposed to this much truth and to fall short in that is is a real tragedy. So did any brothers want to want to bring forth that home just to encourage our readers to uh, listeners rather to take that seriously.
1: I agree, brother. And we need to take heed. Yeah, what a terrible thing it would be to have all your theology echoing through your mind in hell forever. Because the Christ that was right there in all your books was never in your heart.
0: Amen. Well, brothers, it's uh, been a real pleasure being with you today. I'm looking forward to uh, pursuing this again next time. Uh, Until then, we wish all of our uh, listeners a blessed week, and may the,
2: the Christ of the Scriptures dwell in your hearts richly by faith. Until then, God bless you.